the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. This is a reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Different from what's printed in your bulletins. You can find it on page 871 if you're reading along. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who killed the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you today teach us to fear and teach us not to fear? Would you teach us what these things mean and the mystery of your gospel and grace for the honor of your name? Amen. Please be seated. So last week we kicked off a new series of sermons called Living in Fear, Godly Fear in an Anxious Age. For five weeks, we are going to be exploring this topic, and that's because fear is, it's one of the most powerful factors in the life of a person, both for good and for evil. And I think the truth is we don't talk about it enough. As we said last week, fear is complex, it's multifaceted, it's hard to define. It's an emotion, a state of being, and a neurobiological reaction. It ranges from extreme terror terror to low-grade anxiety. It can be attached to a specific threat or have no identifiable source whatsoever. It can be good and it can be bad, necessary to our survival, but also a source of incredible misery. At its most basic, fear is the experience of being overwhelmed by something more powerful than yourself or outside of your control. So once you take a moment to think about what you're afraid of, here's some of the answers that might fill an imaginary collection of thought bubbles floating over our heads this morning. I'm afraid of developing Alzheimer's. I'm afraid I won't get into my dream school. I'm afraid that my adult child will never grow up. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid my savings are gonna run out. I'm afraid that no one will ever truly know me and I'm equally afraid that if someone really knew me, they wouldn't like what they found. I'm afraid of this upcoming election. I'm afraid that God might not actually love me. I'm afraid of being afraid for the rest of my life. Fear is what we experience when we recognize that we're powerless. What I called naked fear last week. It's the kind of fear that Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden when they chose independence from God and having achieved that independence were astonished to discover their vulnerability and shocked by their exposure. Growing up in a broken world, we are habituated to fear and how it makes us feel. 
So when we get introduced to God, the most powerful being in the universe, and we're told that it's a good thing to fear him, it's kind of confusing. Because no one wants to live in naked fear all the time, do they? The fear of the Lord, it is hard to get our heads around. Because it shares certain elements of our naked fear, while at the same time being fundamentally different. When we encounter God, we're overwhelmed by his power more than any other power because his is absolute. But as we experience his presence, we learn that his power isn't a threat. Instead, it's the source of life and the expression of his love. So we fear him, but the nature of that fear is different from any other fear that we ever experience. Well, in order to try and understand how this works, I want for us to turn our attention to our reading from Exodus 20. You can find it on page 61 in the Red Bibles. Exodus 20, and it starts at verse 18. When the people of Israel arrived at Mount Sinai, they were exhausted. They were irritated, and frankly, they were kind of confused. Three months prior, God had led them out of slavery in Egypt through a series of horrible, miraculous plagues that had driven Pharaoh to his knees. Since their departure, however, they had made little progress on their journey to the land of Canaan. Moses had led them out of Egypt with a promise to take them home to the beautiful, bounteous land where their ancestors had come from 400 years before. But here they were in the desert, three months later, waiting for God to act. So they come to Mount Sinai, where God finally meets them in a terrifying display of power. Thunderclouds descend, lightning flashes, the air sizzles with static electricity, and the people who have seen what God is capable of back in Egypt, they're terrified. I want to read the description of this moment to you once again. It's at verse 18, Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. I think it's understandable that God's people feared him. They don't really know him. For 400 years, they've lived among the Egyptians. They've had no scripture to guide them, no prophets to teach them, just the memory of God's promises to their forefathers to give them some semblance of hope. But now that God has turned up, they're not so sure what, that they want to be around him. You see, the only kind of power that they have ever known is the power of the slave master. The only kind of fear that they've ever known is the fear of punishment and of death. So when a power greater than anything that they've ever seen turns up, they're terrified. But here's what Moses says to them. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Don't fear, he says. 
In other words, you don't need to shrink back in terror. You don't need to be afraid of what God might do to you. His power is not intended for your destruction, but for your good. Do not fear, he says. But in the very next breath, he continues, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Don't fear God, fear God. I mean, what's it going to be, Moses? Well, the only way this makes sense is if Moses has two different ways of fearing God in mind. On the one hand, there is the fear of a slave. It's the only kind of fear the Israelites have ever known. This includes the fear of punishment, fear of death, fear of being used and abused forever. And this kind of fear, they are told to abandon. Do not fear. On the other hand, there is the fear of a son. And this is a new kind of fear for God's people. This is the overwhelming awe that one feels when ultimate power is expressed in unconditional love. It is a fear that will lead them to obedience and to joy. And this is the fear that they are meant to learn at the foot of the fiery mountain. When Moses explains that God has come to test them, he doesn't mean that he has brought them to the mountain in order to sit a final exam. He's brought them there to give them his law and so prepare them for life in the promised land. This testing is not an act of judgment, but of refinement and preparation. God wants to strengthen them and to train them up for the life ahead. He wants to lead them out of the mindset of the forced labor of slavery into the freedom of sons and daughters who joyfully obey their father. He wants to change the shape of their fear. I love what happens next. Verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Holy cow. Moses turned his back on the cowering crowd and he walked straight into the storm. Can you imagine? If anyone thought that Moses was weak or indecisive or not much of a leader, they reconsidered in that moment as the darkness enveloped him. Of course Moses was afraid. How could you not be awed and overwhelmed by the thunder, the lightning, and the storm? But this was the fear of a man who knew the God who beckoned him. This was the fear of a man who was no longer a slave, but a son of the Most High. He had entered his presence before on this same mountain and not been burned. And so he walked toward God instead of cowering in the distance. There is a fear that flees and a fear that seeks. There's a fear that runs for cover and a fear that brings forth courage. There is a fear that shrinks back in expectation of pain and a fear that leans forward in anticipation of joy. Now I know, I know that this second kind of fear is unfamiliar. Like the people of Israel, we know the fear of slaves. 
not the fear of sons and daughters. But the fear that God invites is the fear of a child nestled in the powerful arms of her father. And we can call this fear awe, or we can call it reverence if we want to, but I prefer to continue calling it fear because that's the primary term that Scripture uses. And only the word fear seems to capture the exquisite power of this experience with God. Well, in order to help us try to understand this fear a little bit better, I want to shift your attention from Exodus to Luke. Chapter 12, it's on page 871. I changed my mind about the reading after it was too late for the bulletin. Page 871, Luke 12. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and this is what he says beginning at verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus starts by telling them what not to fear. Do not fear those who can kill you. But of all the things that we might fear, this, this feels like it should be pretty near the top of the list, doesn't it? Shouldn't we fear people who threaten to kill us? Well, Jesus says, no, actually, you don't need to fear them. What's he doing here? What he's doing is Jesus is taking the greatest fear of all, our fear of death, and he's saying that not even death should cause us fear. Instead, we should be concerned with what happens after death and the one who controls the eternal destiny of every creature he has made, God. It is God who judges, who condemns, and who saves. And it is God we should fear far more than, than death. So at this point, you're probably thinking, um, uh, that's great, John. I'm really not getting the whole child in the arms of her father vibe. That's because Jesus isn't finished. We will get to the word of comfort soon enough. But first, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here, what he's trying to accomplish in the hearts and minds of those who are listening. What he's doing is he's redirecting the fears of the people seeking to shift their focus from all of the possible threats of the world out there and to move it on to God. By saying that death and murder are not ultimate threats, Jesus is actually disempowering everything that could possibly fill us with terror. He's taking the fear out of this world and he's turning that fear to God in part because, yes, God does have the power to condemn us. We need to be aware of this reality. But there's more to fearing God than fearing his judgment. And that's what comes next. As he begins to describe the God who has the power to condemn, Jesus describes him not as a stern taskmaster, but as a caring sovereign. He doesn't describe how terrifying he is, but how attentive he is. He doesn't portray him as cruel, but as caring. 
And that is because the one who has the power to judge is also the one who has the power to save. And that is what he longs to do. So listen again, listen to this strange sequence and it's abrupt, abrupt shift in tone. Verse five, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, sparrows were the most common birds. They were sold in bunches as food for the poorest of the poor. They were at the bottom of the heap of living things. And yet Jesus says, God doesn't forget a single sparrow. Each one is precious in his sight. And we, he says, we are more precious than they. So precious that in fact, every hair on our heads is accounted for. And for this reason, we need not fear. That astonishingly abrupt transition from fear him to fear not, it almost makes our heads explode. We find it nearly impossible to hold fear and comfort in the same breath. But here it is. We are to fear the Lord and nothing else, but not as a tyrant and not as a threat. We are to fear him as a child who sits in awe of her father and rests in the trust of his abiding love. Three times in this short passage, Jesus speaks about fear. First, he says, don't fear those who want to kill you because death isn't the worst thing out there. Instead, he goes on, you should fear the one who, after you have died, can condemn you to hell, God. But understand this, when you come to him, what you will discover is that his power is not a threat to your safety. It is the source of your joy. Yes, God is judge. He is also Savior who counts the hair on our heads because he cares for us. The invitation is clear. Trust in him, fear him, and he will teach you not to fear anything else at all. Mike Reeves is a friend of mine who has recently written a wonderful little book on the fear of the Lord called Rejoice and Tremble. Rejoice and tremble. In one passage, he, he describes our fear like this. He says, it's not the dread of sinners before a holy judge. It's not the awe of creatures before their tremendous creator. It is the overwhelmed devotion of children marveling at the kindness and righteousness and glory and complete magnificence of the Father. That's a wonderful description. And it captures something that we all long for, that pure fear of God that makes us confident in the face of everything else. But I, I know what you're thinking. How? How? It is hard enough to understand this fear. How can I learn to, to have it? How do I get it? Some things we learn through the application of intellect. Others we learn only by experience. The hardest things to learn are those that require both a change in thought and a new set of experiences, and fear is one of these. 
The fear of the Lord is not merely a concept to be understood. It's an experience that we must embrace. Fear has to do with what we attend to, what we focus on, how we orient ourselves to the world. Do we fix our attention on those things that threaten us and are out of our control? Or do we fix our eyes on the God who made us, who alone is in control of all things? The only way we will ever learn to fear the Lord is by reorienting, by shifting our attention, seeking out his presence. What did Moses do when the storm settled on the mountain and all God's people shrank back in terror? Well, he ran toward the lightning and the billowing smoke. He disappeared into the darkness. Yes, he was afraid. But it was the fear of a man who knew the God who was calling him onward. He'd been there before at the burning bush. And he knew that the fire of God didn't consume, it purified. His fear wasn't the terror of a slave, it was the wonder of a son. He knew that even though God isn't safe, he's good. He wasn't afraid of judgment, but overwhelmed by glory, trembling with awe and longing to draw ever nearer to the God who set the whole universe in motion. Earlier this year, scientists at an observatory in Chile discovered that the brightest object in the universe had been hiding right in plain sight. What they thought was a nearby star has turned out to be an entire galaxy much farther away than anyone imagined. Galaxy J0529-4351 it has a black hole at its heart and it shines with the brightness of get this 500 trillion suns that's because it ex exerts such an astonishing pull on the space around it that every day this galaxy consumes the mass equivalent of an entire sun, shredding it in a swirling vortex of energy measuring seven light years in diameter. The God who made this galaxy, who stirs it around with his little finger 12 billion light years away is the same God who counts the hairs on your head and says to you, do not fear. The only way, the only way we can learn to set aside our fears and to fear him alone is by stepping into his presence like Moses. But here's the catch, we, we almost never do this unintentionally. What sets the fear of the Lord apart from most other fears is that while other fears are spontaneous and frankly unavoidable, this particular fear must be cultivated. God doesn't impose himself on us. He doesn't threaten or terrify us. He invites us and we must respond by stepping forward into his presence. And we must be intentional in doing so.
How? By gathering for worship together on a Sunday. By sitting alone in the darkness of the early morning in order to pray. By singing songs of praise in the kitchen or if you're tone deaf in the car with the windows up. By opening up the scriptures and reading of his marvelous acts. By taking a stroll on the beach and contemplating the power of the one who made the ocean. This is how we step into God's presence. Last week I gave you a simple prayer to pray. And I want to encourage you once again to pray this prayer throughout the upcoming week. Grant me godly fear, O Lord. Six words. Grant me godly fear, O Lord. Six words that will lead you into God's presence where I can assure you of this. He delights to answer our prayers. Let's pray together. Grant us godly fear, O Lord. Amen.